0: New CEOs often come in and make bold statements about what they are going to achieve. Over time, many simply fall by the wayside. Very few tick every single box. Not only was my guest, Brendan Gale, able to achieve the ambitious goals he set out, he did so much more. Previously underperforming, Brendan aligned the teams at the Richmond Football Club around values, behaviours and a plan, a powerful culture was driven out of demonstrable ideals such as respect self-worth and transparency all the while management and the board sought to reject external noise and stood true to a clearly defined plan brendan and his team magnificently turned around the on-field and off-field results of richmond and in doing so left an indelible mark football clubs now talk about doing things the richmond way coaches talk more about being true to yourself and embracing everyone else around them. Because of a deeper understanding of values-driven behaviour, I believe every club and every single player stands to gain a little piece of silverware. Enjoy our chat. Brendan Gale, Chief Executive Officer, Richmond Football Club, thank you for coming in and being on Discipline. Pleasure. Tony, good to be with you. I always like to start by asking when you're a little boy, what did you
1: dream you wanted to be when you grew up? <laughs> well, certainly not a lawyer, which was uh, the previous part of my life. No, I think I wanted to be a, like most young boys, maybe a policeman or maybe a fireman. I remember uh, running around the yard. With old shirts on we used to put the sort of policeman sergeant stripes on playing playing cops in, in the back of our yard in, in in Tasmania. So, yeah, maybe maybe a maybe a policeman or fireman. Um, certainly not a footballer. I mean, yeah, that, that wasn't a probably would deem to be a sort of a or career. career back then. Yeah. But, uh,
0: stock standard. I would have thought. Mm. And where did um. Benny, come from. I always thought there were three brothers. Uh, Benny and Brendan look like identical twins. Where did the nickname Benny come from?
1: It's a really interesting one. It, it's, a, it's a name my father used to uh, used to give me, and I think because he considered that I yapped a lot, so he used to call me Benny Bullfrog, as in a, you know a big wide open mouth yapping all day. So it was really confined to him, and uh, and no one else really called me that. Um, but uh, when Kevin Bartlett who was my first senior coach, arrived in Tasmania after being drafted to sort of meet the parents and sort of stuff. And uh, my father referred to me with that name and, and KB picked up on it. So KB used the nickname and, and then um, then I started playing senior football. It spread pretty quickly. stuck. So it stuck, yeah. yeah. So I've, I've been called worse. Uh,
0: got a bit of a history, family of footballers, and also a bit of history with the Richmond Footy Club – was it always your ambition to be at that club because your grandfather had played there?
1: Yeah, no, it wasn't. And it's just funny how things have evolved and worked out. But, um, yeah, football, well, certainly growing up in Tasmania, it, it was a very football-rich state. But your, your heroes were your local heroes. Yep. Um, and so for me, it was the Penguin Football Club or, or the Birdie Football Club where we moved later on. So this, this notion of airfield football... It seemed very foreign, very remote, yeah. very far away. You would have had the game of the week on Saturday and you'd that's get, probably You'd it. get thirty minutes. Yeah. You'd get thirty minutes and, and the winners on a Saturday night and you get only, you'd see three or four teams. Yep. And so uh which probably Richmond one, to be fair, back in those times. But um but no, it was my my older brother, uh, Michael, was eighteen months older than me. He got drafted at Fitzroy and um, and start to establish himself. I was at uni, first year uni. I was a wild, young, uh, first year uni student, enjoying the, you know, <laughs> enjoying my time at university. And I probably still didn't see it as a career. End of first year, I played in my local team that just entered the state competition. It? got drafted, went to Richmond, had a career there. Left Richmond, worked in commercial law for a few years in, in a particular part of the law that almost required me to go overseas. I just wanted to get away from Melbourne and yeah. The bubble of football, and
0: so you had no pressure growing up when Michael went to Fitzroy to go and play football to follow in his
1: footsteps. No, yeah. no, I think when when look, I always loved football, like all kids, you love playing, and, and I guess I was I was pretty good at it. But as as a young kid, but it was really my brother that blazed the trail because you know there's this in Tasmania. I found at the time growing up. Not not just in sport, but maybe in business and academia and a whole range of things. There's this tyranny of distance. There's yeah. this vast race yes. where people struggle across that. That's a real sort of metaphor, I guess. Um, but uh, no, he, he sort of almost gave him permission to sort of you know if you put your head down, you can you can you can make this. So we'd sort of a, I was under the impression I was going to Fitzroy. They spoke to me a few times before the draft, and Richmond swooped. The vagaries of the draft back then where you didn't know. Yeah. So that's what happened and uh, and uh, no regrets. You um, come across
0: as a professional athlete and over your career it looked like you showed pretty remarkable resilience as, as an athlete, you know, playing almost every year, you know, 16 games sort of minimum. Did, when you are in that bubble, as you call it, did you understand the opportunity that you had as a professional footballer, professional athlete and prepare well was it just good breeding, you know, that you got uh, such a good run at it?
1: Oh, look, a bit of both. I mean, there was obviously some some genes there. There was some, you know, like, like I grew up in Tasmania and I had a very, very rich upbringing. And I don't mean materially rich. I mean richness of opportunity and access to facilities. So any sport you wanted to play, like was a keen, you know, surfer, if I say, cricket, footy. So just having that um, exposure to a range of sports, um, I, I'm a really keen surfer still. Yep. Am. So I think having that, you know, the proprioception and flexibility being in the salt water. Um, So, um, yeah, I mean, the AFL football, we're beneficiaries of incredible medical support, which is fantastic. So, yeah, all all those things, all those things, yeah. I mean, and I guess the other thing was back then we weren't full-time. So were you studying? Well, I was studying. And, you know, the guys were plumbers, um, they were school teachers. They they, they, They had their vocation and... And they come to training at four o'clock every afternoon. and So I think there's something about that balance of perspective that kept you fresh. Yeah. And uh, and for me, it was never an end in itself. It was only just a sort of a pathway to... So you always had line. a mindset
0: beyond football? You were always looking as, okay, what am I going to do when I get out of this? I think
1: so, because yeah. we knew no different. There yeah. was no choice. Yeah. Whereas I think the generation of players these days, I mean, if you're a... If you're a Upper echelon of players, and you, you're lucky enough to play 200 games. If you're half smart with what you've earned and you invest wisely, I mean, you could almost—you wouldn't want to retire. Oh, hi, <laughs> you wouldn't want to. I mean, that would be terrible. But you could almost could. That was never an option on our day. Yeah. Um, you know, if you if you're if you're um, you know, if you owned your home, fully owned your home, Medicare career that was a great result. But, yeah. Mate, guys at 28, 29, 30 owning your home is a good result.
0: It's fantastic. And um, what about? as you go through your career adaptation because, you know, you start in your career as a forward, playing centre-half forward, and then you go into the into the ruck later on in, in your career. Do you have to adapt your mindset? Do you still have to play within this team sort of mindset where I'll do what the coach wants? And, you know, are you ultimately able to reconcile that in your head when you go from kicking goals to running around the ground? How how do you cope with that as a young man? Yeah,
1: I think it's um, I think you know ultimately that's the thing that draws you to the game that it's a team game. And you've got to play your role, and the best teams have a lot of guys that are just prepared to play their role. Now I probably wasn't good enough as an individual athlete to be, you know, picking and choosing where I play. They like a Dustin Martin or you know just go and play, do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> so no my, and uh f- you know at that particular time you know i I'd, I'd played probably two, two-thirds of my career as a center forward but the game had, had taken a big jump in terms of athleticism guys at my height were becoming faster and quicker and more powerful Yeah, and i wasn't and so you know necessity is of invention well well our ruckman at the time was a guy called justin charles who got put out of the game for 12 months biggest of a drug breach and so that meant I had to go into the ruck, but actually allowed me to develop other parts of my game and perhaps extended my career, maybe three or four more years longer than it should have. But you see it as an opportunity when that happened. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, I did it um, because I think I think my days as a key forward, given the changes in the game, were limited. Key forwards were like Matthew Richardson, could run and jump fast and yeah. run all day long. That wasn't me. So yeah, I think it gave me an opportunity and and. Uh, to extend my career, providing I played my role.
0: Richmond weren't the most successful footy club on the field during your time as a player. Were there moments where you just thought, you know, what am I doing here? Like, am I good enough? Could I go to another club? What's the thought process when the team's not having the kind of success and you've got to go through this rigor
1: every year? Look, we weren't the best team, but we weren't the worst team. And you know, there's a there was, there was probably a period of mediocrity, that's how I describe it. Um, yeah, there's a period in the seventies and eighties where Richmond was a very strong team. Then there was this period of decline. And the period of the nineties was just mediocrity. We Did just played a, Yeah. We, we look, we finished ninth with the term ninthman <laughs> <laughs> became part of the, the <laughs> vernacular. And, uh, look, we, so yeah, we're ninthman. We're not, we weren't that good. We weren't that, we played a few finals series, got to a couple of preliminary finals. So firstly, there wasn't that feeling of despair and hopelessness. And that, coupled with the fact that I'm a natural sort of optimist, yeah. um, I always felt hopeful that tomorrow would be a better day, yeah. and next season would be a better season. And yeah. I was saying to my son the other day um, about footy, and uh, um, he's thirteen, but I said I don't think there was ever a game that I didn't think we could win. Yeah. Now the bookies would suggest otherwise, <laughs> but we all, I believe that. Yeah. Um,
0: I don't think you play professional sport if you don't think you can no, you win do. every game. Indeed, yeah, yeah. And what about personally? You know, when you've got moments of doubt, did you have moments of doubt? You say you're an optimist, but there must have been moments where you thought, "I'm just not good enough." or well, this isn't this isn't for me. How do, yeah, you, of how do you keep going?
1: Yeah, it comes. Look, um, you know, once you have settled in your career, you know, I think when you're young and you're exuberant and you're fearless, and and you sort of don't. There's a sense of recklessness. You don't have any doubts. You just shoot for the sky. And, but I guess when you sell into your career and and you know you but don't perform as well as you would have liked or hoped or yeah, sometimes those doubts do creep in. And um, you know I just think it's where you have people around you and and you know, experienced players and coaches that, that sort of help you understand that's just part of human nature. That's all athletes have doubts. All leaders have doubts And their capacities or abilities. But part of you know that next step and leadership is about knowing them and about owning them, but about compartmentalising them. Yeah, just saying well, that's you know you just and, there- and 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 sort of it's almost like identifying evidence to the contrary. So all well, doubts are doubts, but mate, all this evidence suggests so otherwise. Yeah. You know right. what I mean? So
0: and was there someone who brought that out of you? Was there something like you you mentioned coaches? Was there a mentor or someone in particular that really helped you? With your thought process of seeing that, or was it just innate to you?
1: No, I remember. I remember. Um, I remember. Uh, I read, read an article. I've always been a fairly curious person, I think. But I remember uh, we had we had a sports psych, which was a relative, you know, a, a, a novel <laughs> sort of initiative at the club. But uh, but he'd take group sessions and stuff, and and uh, he he'd talk about things from a group perspective. We're a young group coming through together and evolving, but I remember um, he talked about um, these issues. But he referred to um, just Martin Seligman. So he was a, he was became the guru of what was called positive psychology. Right. He wrote a book called Learned Optimism. Um, I think I've heard. That. Yeah, it's a it's a seminal type work. Yeah. Uh, in in this field, um, he's the guru, so to speak. In, in this, so remember I read this book. We still have it. Um, and uh so it just talks about the extent to which we self-sabotage and talk us but we all do and it's just gotta you know it's about recognizing compartmentalizing and and focusing on positives guess I mean, yeah. it's it's, so oui. it's pretty easy but, <laughs> but i remember it's a really good book it's a
0: um, did you ever get offers to move club? And do you ever think, you know, um, my time's running out career-wise. I really want to win a premiership. There's some people knocking I could move clubs. I remember some-
1: the club The club, at probably about uh, the last uh, probably three or four years of my career. The club, to their credit, come to me. I might have been vice captain at the time. I can't remember. But they said, look, we just, yeah, in the interest of it, honesty and transparency and out of respect to you, there's a bit of trade discussion going on. There's been interest from from um, from Adelaide. Because I think Malcolm Blight was coach and I think they might have been looking to keep you know, building their key position strength. And we're just saying there's been interest and from our point of view, if there was if the offer was right or the trade was right, we'd probably consider that. You know, what would your thoughts be? And I remember saying, Well, I appreciate the honesty, firstly, thank you. But look, um, I think I'd just retire, you know. And they said, what do, you, "What do you mean retire?" And I said, "Well, I'd, I'd rather just retire rather than go to Adelaide, you know, because I wasn't that enthusiastic about Adelaide." And they and they said, uh, "Gee, but you got three or four years left." And I said, "Yeah, but I don't like Adelaide." Yeah, well, I could... said, "You don't like Adelaide." The, the funny thing is, my experience of Adelaide back then was the airport. Yeah. Um, Footy park. Footy park. Yeah. Out in the boondocks, on yeah. the bus back to the airport. At home, I had really no experience or exposure to Adelaide at all. But anyway, it didn't. It didn't eventually.
0: Well, I can, I can, I can see that. I left. I'm from Adelaide, and yeah. I, I left on about my nineteenth birthday and got out of there. And
1: my parents are still
0: there, but Adelaide is a small town.
1: Well, having said that, uh, it didn't eventuate. That's fine. But with the with, I guess, the revival of the Adelaide Oval. And having a reason to be in and around the city. Yeah, it's much better. It's now. a remarkable city. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just, it's, it's like aesthetically, culturally, it's, it's you know, I'm sure for those who live there and brought up, they love it. And there's so many attractions. And I just had such a confined experience that I was prepared to just hang up in the boots. Yeah, it's, uh, it's which it's, probably it's, wasn't, to, to be honest, it wasn't really sincere, but it's having a real probably, renaissance at Yeah, line. it absolutely is. Yeah. And
0: what I'm interested also in the locker room dynamics, you know, you've got multitude of different personalities, people from different backgrounds represented. Does the locker room help you learn to get along with different people, see things from different perspectives, um prepare for the
1: wider world when you're out of this footy bubble? Yeah, it does. It does. It. um yeah, the locker room and and you know, we talk these days, you know, that it's all about, you know, authenticity and vulnerability and well, that was sort of the way we used to do things back then. It was like, you know, it was your safe place. It was where you stripped down, like metaphorically. Yeah, You stripped down and you were just, you're open and, and you just learn more about blokes and all the banter and the hijinks and the, um you'd learn about people and people would reveal themselves and there'd be jokes and fun. So it was, a, the locker room was really important. Yeah. Yeah, really important. Mm-hmm. So, post-football,
0: you know, you're thinking about life after footy. You've already been at uni. You go into a, a law
1: career. Why law? Well, I've always had a great interest in, uh, I guess, Australian or Australia's place in the world and, you know, international relations and foreign affairs. And, and it was um, – so, that was probably my long-term aspiration. You know, I wanted to work, you know, somewhere like DFAT, something right. like that. And you, I... You had the travel bug? Um, yeah, a bit of that. I mean, I was very curious about the world. From and, Tasmania, yeah, sort of isolated. Yeah, yeah. And I think as Australians we are, aren't we? We're searchers, we're travellers. Yeah, you know, we, we're an island. Yeah, we're an island. So, And in fact, I, done, I completed a Master's degree in Arts in Asian mm-hmm. Studies and sort of International Relations. And, but my footy career probably went longer than I expected. And, um, and the longer it did and the more I enjoyed it, the more that sort of door closed... And so, and law for me was an opportunity, it was sort of to complement that, you know. Um, but I, I I just felt once I'd finished footy, well, I should go into articles. Yeah. It'd be a waste not to do that. And then, then I went more into the corporate, you know, finance side because I thought, well, this will help me, this will give my ticket to travel, you know, like, like I got, you know, guys went to London or yep. Hong Kong or something, the New York bar exam, et cetera. So. Yes, yeah, so I did the London thing. It was. It was good fun yeah, for a couple so, of years. Yeah, so I never did that. Yeah. I never did that. I mean, I, I travelled extensively all throughout the world, lots of, you know, footy trips and lots of, you know, short, but I never really immersed myself in another part of the world for an extended period of time. And even my family, I thought, it would have been good to have was only very young, so they were transportable. So I thought, yeah, I gave it a go and, um, and, uh yeah, it just wasn't for me. Yeah. But I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Learned a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah. I met some Wonderful people. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say you know I did the same. For probably three three years. Learned a huge amount. Mm. Um, probably didn't enjoy the people as much. I'm mm. not really an aggressive A-type personality, yeah. yeah. and I found that butting of heads yeah. constantly, even with your colleagues, drained me. Yeah,
1: I just found f- for me. I remember uh, I just always felt like we we're at the periphery. You know, there was there was the stuff that was being done, and then you put it into writing you at did. the end. Yeah, built the stuff being built or created, or the value being created, or the employment or economic—we just at the periphery. And yeah. I remember I, I worked with a with a partner on um, the financing of the QV building, which was a Grocon development. And I think it was when Daniel Grollo had just taken over the business. And I remember just just thinking, here's a guy you know, a similar age, you know, obviously, <laughs> obviously very substantial backing, but he's out doing stuff. You yeah. know, he's building this building and he's creating jobs and yes. you know, economic growth and he's leading and doing and we we you know don't get me wrong the people i work with him for are extremely bright and c- capable but always
0: yeah yeah
1: you know, in I, that sense i didn't find it fulfilling no i had a very similar
0: thing mm. you know i used to come home i used to travel from london around the world help do all these great projects and I remember coming home and said to my wife once in London, I said, this is probably as good a job as you can get, you know. Got all the big ticket items, first class travel, nice hotels, good lunches, great work, really interesting. I said, if this is as good as it gets, I'm in real trouble because I'm like you, wanted to be involved in the creativity, not just putting efficacy at the end to someone else's deal. Yep. Yeah, I understand that. So after the law, you get into the um, Players' Association, Take on the role of uh, CEO. How did that come about? What sort of
1: uh, enticed you to make that shift? Well, it was. I remember speaking to a uh, a guy in the law profession. that was a bit of a mentor, and and I, and I talked to him about some of the challenges I was having, and and um, and he said, "Okay, so you've you know, so you've played AFL football, and now you're working at Malison, and you're working, sort of, project finance because." You wanted to get yourself away from football, give yourself a chance and you feel, I mean, everything you've done is completely (laughs) counterintuitive from where you come. So no wonder you're not feeling that sense of fulfillment. So he started to talk about, you know, I looked at maybe the bar. He had another firm, a smaller firm, which had some big sort of national, international sporting clients and sport businesses. But yeah, Rob Kerr, who I knew from the Players Association was the CEO and he said, look, I'm, he came from out of the blue and said, I'm stepping down. You know, would you like to come and do this role? And if, if, if that's the case, you should come in, ride shotgun to me, give yourself a chance for the next six months. No guarantees. It'll be a formal process at the end. And so that's what I did. And in hindsight, it was one of the best decisions I made. I, I was concerned about leaving the law because Yes, there was, it wasn't, it's was probably feeling, but there was some certainty and predictability and there's the, it's a good career. It's a good career. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and back then, footy was becoming, you know, I'm not sure whether footy could sustain careers and professions and, and certainly the players association, we had a staff of about eight, you know, yeah, that, right. oh, we're, no, I'm just, well, you know, then I thought, you know what, I'll give it a go. And, you had know, four or five years, it was you know, incredible times, just, Almost a, a, it was at the time when the game experienced this, a, a commercial revolution, a, yeah. almost a broadcasting-driven revolution. So there's more money flowing to the game. So there's more at stake for players. Players were moving from quasi to fully professional. Yeah, it's the dawn of professionalism. Indeed. Yeah. And there were, you know, there were, the game was a whole pro- profile. We had, you, know, you know, the CBAs and total player payments and, and um, you know, illicit drug policies. a whole range of big... Yeah. You know, and, and people were looking at, at football as a, you know, a, a, an important social, cultural institution and that brought a range of... Anyway, it was a very really complex but quite incredible time.
0: I heard Rodney Heade speak about this. Uh, might have been around the same time. And he said there was a ratio of four to one people following football and people following politics in the media. So that's what yeah. an important role football has in our society.
1: Yeah. Well, we introduced a lesser drug policy... And it was almost it was a medical back, it wasn't a punitive. It was like at the end of the day, we, there's no legal requirement for the players to regulate in their private worlds in terms of illicit drug use. But we saw the risks and the risks about, you know, bringing drugs. Anyway, so we thought we'd put him signed off on this illicit drug policy. But it came at it, there was this famous three strikes and you're out. You know, but people didn't understand that and they got confused. They oh, were well, on that, feels, you know, you know, it's slack and it's soft on drugs and blah, blah. So it became quite politicised. Yes. And and I'm at the highest level. I mean, even the Prime Minister was coming out and, you know, slamming this policy which was based on science and medicine. And, oh, wow, this is a big deal. We had to go to the Supreme Court. Yeah. A successive years to protect that, like um, we've got a permanent injunction against – we took on news, seven media, Fairfax – for breach of confidentiality, yeah, you know, they um, were trying to publish confidential aspects of his policy, and which went against the whole. But, what a great learning experience! This is a big deal. This is this is this is a big policy issue here, yeah. and um, we're just little old football players doing. You see it radiated out through the community. Slightly more,
0: might have been slightly more exciting than a role at DFAT, uh, Brendan. And how did you know in your head at the time? Because you've got all these different agendas. You've got the players you're representing, but ultimately sport and this sport in particular is about dollars and and money. So when you're faced with an issue of representing the players and, you know, the big corporate requirements to do things their way, how do you know when to push back? How do you know there's a line and, you know, maybe we shouldn't step across it or are you completely in the player's corner and, you know, damn the torpedoes, what happens in head office, I've got to represent the players' interest. Did you balance that? You have to
1: work through that? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, you're always, I mean, every day, you know, even in my current job, you're ranging, you're, sorry, you're balancing a range of competing considerations and sometimes, they're you know, they're incompatible and you're trying to land in the right place. I mean, the thing that makes football a little easier, that at the end of the day, this is a not-for-profit caper, you know, so, you know, players are putting on the show, the club's putting on the show, You know, they're trying to engage and inspire members and fans who ultimately sustain the game and give them a great experience. So no one's, no one's pocketing the loot, (laughs) if you know what I mean. Yeah. Which is how a lot of the professional sports of the states are characterized. There is no ideological division here between workers and capital, if you know what I mean? So it's really. It's all returned. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we want to make sure players, this is a really tough game and players, it's a great opportunity. Players risk a lot. And uh, so we want to make sure they're rewarded from the, from the money that comes into the game, but it can't come at the expense of the growth of the game yep. for the future generations, and it can't it can't grow to the point where the game becomes less accessible or affordable to fans. So it's they're the big things yeah, that govern the decision making. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And it's just trying to. And I think if there were um, owners who were getting huge returns from their football team to, well, that'll be different. Yeah. The discussions will be a little more acute.
0: Yeah, no, I think the, the socialist stream that runs through the AFL is a yeah. far better way to have a competition. Indeed, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, you look at um, look at this, you know, European Super League overnight, the story that's breaking out of the UK, soccer, I mean, it's just no,
0: catastrophic. It's terrible. It reminds us of the Super League we had here in the rugby yeah. uh, mm. 30-odd years ago. Mm. Then you move on to a club, you come out – and you move on to the CEO of the Richmond Football Club, so and you've held this role for almost twelve years. Were you seeking it? Were
1: you sounded out? Was it a natural fit? Absolutely not seeking it. Right. I I got contacted. you know, four and a half five years at the Players Association. I uh, I got contacted by. Um, I just completed an a, a, a advanced management program at Harvard Business School, which I guess one of the things about the PA was I. There's some areas where I weren't. I had a board of players who are experts at playing football, but in terms of stretching me and other areas and growing, I probably wasn't getting that. So I had the opportunity to go into this course, which I they contributed half to and we sort of co-funded. But it's funny because th- upon completing this course, they say seventy percent of people leave their their existing jobs, <laughs> and I thought that's not me. I'm going to go. I'm going to take this knowledge. I'm going to take the PA. And, but not long after I'd returned, uh, the club rang. Gary March who was the president at the time, and they just they just um, basically sacked the existing coach Terry Wallace, and they put him together a panel of um, a selection committee with some independent people and club people. and I thought it, I thought he might have been ringing me to ask me would I like to be part of that to assist with the selection process of a new coach, give him a, I guess broader experience in footy. But no, when he when he um, when he contacted me, we had in fact we had lunch just around the corner. He said the the the, the CEO, the current CEO, who'd done a wonderful job and stabilizing the club for a pretty tough time, was going to step down. He wasn't that well. What I put my hand up again. No guarantees and and it was something I'd not for one moment ever coveted. it. I never sort of saw myself in that role, but I went home and thought more about it and told with my wife and and I just felt there was a real, you know, the club wasn't a great place at that time, but, you know, I thought it was a great intellectual challenge, but a great sort of challenge of the heart as well, given my association. So I, said, I put my hand up and I only got the job.
0: Six months into that, you've uh, come out with a very famous Nostradamus-like uh, plan. We all know the achievement that's happened to achieve those goals now. But at the time when the future's not clear and you put out a, a plan like that, do you have reservations? Do you think, geez, I'm putting myself out of here, I could
1: I can look like a fool if I get this wrong? Yeah. No, we did. I remember challenging our executive at the time, just saying, you know, I want, I want, I want a set of prescriptions. I want I want a, I want a roadmap. I want a, I want, a, I want a plan that makes us sort of a bit nervous at night. So but look there was method I mean the, the vision of what success looked like that was ambitious but I always felt Richmond Richmond was an ambitious club you know Richmond had been a very successful club and there was always a real was is that real hunger and drive to be better permeated through the whole club even during those periods of mediocrity which often put a lot of pressure on the club yeah but I just felt we'd never been able to execute that was my feeling and and so yeah the, the, the goals they were ambitious, and, but the strength was in the roadmap. And how Can I just ask, because it's interesting you mentioned yeah. that Harvard Business Course, yeah. how much of
0: that was in the 10-year plan? How much of you know connecting the dots, was there something you learned over there that actually gave you that feeling that we need a roadmap like
1: this and enough belief that if I put it together we can achieve it? Yeah, to some extent there was. Yeah, like we, there, we did a couple of big case studies on, transforma- on large system change and transformational change and how you sort of – Sort of undertake a project of that nature, and really it was a you know it was a it was a transformational project. Yeah. So it was yep. a blank canvas, really. Yeah. So there was a bit of that. There was a bit of my experience with the with the Players Association because what that gave me was was several times a year going around every club and getting in that club and dealing with clubs over you know disputes or other matters, and so you you got a sense of how some clubs just roll and some clubs come a bit panicked and reactive. And and so it sort of helped confirm, you know, what I felt it took to and, – and plus it was my own experience as a player. Yep. And so you take all those things and and they feed into what you believe it takes. And look, in in, in essence, you know, I just felt at Richmond that that despite the efforts of many, many good people in many different roles over the years, that we weren't all on the same page. Yep. And so when the pressure comes on...
0: So, yeah, I mean, I've got a question right on that because, you know, in footy clubs there's always a lot of older people, you know, they've seen multiple iterations of plans and and so forth. When you've got some of these older heads, and I, I resist the temptation to call them dead wood, but, you know, some people sort of outstay their welcome in jobs, in companies, in roles. Do you hear some of these people talking behind closed doors in your own head sniggering at you, you know, hoping you'll fail? Or was... Everyone actually aligned and came in behind you straight away, or was that a hard sell?
1: No, I think I think internally, I- internally that the board who appointed me had, had drawn a line in the sand, and they'd made some really tough calls, um, and done some heavy lifting to sort of stabilise the club, um, and so I was appointed, and then not long after we appointed Damien Hardwick, and not long after you know a, a new executive to some extent, so it was a bit of a new broom. And there's a real freshness. Yeah, right. So um, you
0: you had got rid of some of the older sort of people that had been around. I, I, I think, yeah, staleness like, or whatever you want
1: to call it. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of, lot of you know, a fair bit of changes. Like effective new executive. Yep. But uh, with a mandate, a strong mandate for change, backed by a board, you know, a board which was which was great. Yeah. And um, and so we and they, they internally they all bought in. You know, they bought into shared purpose and shared understanding where we're going and roadmaps and goals. And, but externally, that's the issue. Because, because externally, Richmond had been a very successful club in the 70s and 60s, 70s, 80s, early 80s. And there was, a, there was a particular way Richmond did business. Yes. Um, and which coined, uh, coined the phrase ruthless Richmond. Yeah. You know, it was like... Pretty cutthroat. Pretty cutthroat. Yeah. And, and success was expected It was pursued... Um, mediocrity wasn't tolerated. But there was a lack of patience of course Lack the- of patience. Yeah. And delivered great results. Yeah. But when the competition modernised, when things like drafts and salary caps came in, that style of leadership and governance and management had been so great for the club mm-hmm. and so thankful for what they contributed. But that method became less relevant. Right. And led to decline. So I was trying to convince them that, yeah you know, like this is the new way we're playing a different game here, and so yeah, like the first couple of years when have bad losses and but you know man up Gail, and you know Saxon people and all that sort of uh, reactive and how
0: do you deal with that at night when you're lying in bed <laughs> and you've got all this external noise and pressure, and probably the internal pressure despite a yeah. board mandating it, it isn't yeah. it, you know you've got a period of time before they'll lose patience eventually
1: yeah. oh alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, I, I just think it, it just – I think it starts with belief, you know, but I think it, 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 it's the buy-in of the people around you. And at the end of the day, I'm the leader, and I've got CEO, and I've got that t- – it's, it's wonderful, but but I'd be nothing without the people collectively buying in and backing each. And that's and that's why, you know, we talk about these you know, first principles are really important to us, having a shared understanding of our purpose and why we exist, of having a shared understanding of what success looks like. Yep. Having a shared understanding of the things that need to happen. You know, once we had that shared understanding, you know, it's harder to deviate, it's harder to get knocked off course. And it's by having strong people, strong boards, strong leaders.
0: Yep. Did you have someone strong in your corner from outside the club? Maybe, you know, family, one thing, but someone else that you looked to as a mentor that helped you when you really were struggling with your own belief?
1: Um, no, I just, I, I, look, I, I just, I don't have mentors. I draw strength from people that are sort of proximate to me. Yep. You know, so I draw from my everyday conversation with colleagues and, um, you know, players and coaches and, and including clearly my family and stuff. So I think, you know, we've all been on this journey together.
0: Yeah. Know. And what about that pressure where, you know, there is, you know, sack, sack the coach, you know, you're not doing enough and that old tendency to, to knee-jerk or to, to make a panic decision. You go through a review hmm. With uh, the coach, and he stays on. There's a lot of external noise saying, you know, how do you back your judgment? How do you know you've got it right through evidence? Yeah,
1: true evidence, data, data, and yeah. evidence. And uh, and facts Whereas in, in a lot in, in football. There's you know, this is a this is a an opinion business. The opinions are so subjective, and the media everyone's got opinion Not only. This, it's the expense. The extent to which people consume the game and have an opinion—that sustains the game. Yeah, that's what—that sustains the game. But it doesn't drive decision making. Yeah, you know. So we've got to separate that, and and unfortunately, you know, some people can't can't, and all of a sudden decisions become reactive and become populist and become. Yep. And so I think under pressure, firstly, if you if you well, how do we define success? Because success isn't just about wins and losses. Sometimes, so it depends how you define success. And in football, particularly, we, we, it wasn't it wasn't about wins and losses because wins and losses weren't going to come that often. And then, as you evolve, probably does become a little more acute. But it's how you define success, and and looking at the evidence to say so. For example, in 2016, the club was under incredible pressure because we we played three final series in a row. We hadn't got far. We'd, Probably expected to go a bit further in 2016. It didn't eventuate. The baseball bats came out, and and the media love a Richmond story, a Richmond self implosion story, and <laughs> they just pile on. Well, I know that. I, we, we know that. It doesn't make things any easier. But the evidence confirmed we were improving as a football club. Yeah. The coach was an effective coach. Yeah. The coach had all the attributes necessary to be a successful coach, no guarantees. Coaching's a program, there's a range of different elements involved in elite sport that some of these can lift and improve and some of these are a bit, you know, we're underperforming we'll dress this and we'll move forward. But, you know, once again, that's having a really strong board and, you know, strong president is is so important.
0: Yeah, well, we all know the result in 2017. I'm sure you'd like to talk about it. I'd like to forget it. Uh, oh if- yes, yeah. yeah, right. Captain at Richmond over the last couple of years has talked about vulnerability mm-hmm. and some of these values: transparency, honesty. Talk to me about the value side because the board buys into a you know a data-driven improvement in the metrics that drive the results. But there has to be values underpinning that. Was there a values proposition? Was there a values statement? Was there something you, in your head that? Needed to come out at this football club because if you get the values right, the results come good. Yeah,
1: no, definitely. But our values have evolved and changed, uh, depending on our particular journey. But um, you know, one, one of the you know one of the values you know that come out of sixteen, you know, we needed to really dial up, and it was was awareness, um, and probably self awareness, and and probably explains. To a large part, our our evolution since then, and, and we just we just felt that um, our model of leadership development was was outdated, um, and it was probably a little bit like law firms. You know, it was, you know, it was just, uh, you think of a football club as an A-type driven environment, results focused, uh, where you come in, no matter where you come from, no matter what background, you just come and you be a lawyer and you just act like a lawyer and you just and you look at your partners and just be like him or be like... Well, similar to that. I mean, in football club, you're encouraged to be like, you know, add that, keep that, delete that, be like... <laughs> Pretty binary. Yeah. And so, so I guess we evolved to... We're going we're gonna to put an emphasis on self-understanding, self-awareness, self-knowledge, self-worth... Self-love. Get rid of these masks you turn up with every day, and 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 because we all we we'll, we'll want to fit in, don't we? Yeah. And be yourself, proud to be. Yeah. So that sense of real awareness and ownership. Yeah. Now, when you when you're proud to be, you're probably more likely to be at your best. But also, when you're proud to be and you turn up and uh, have the confidence and courage to express yourself fully. Yeah. It lends itself to connecting with others. Yeah, they don't shout you down or say you're yeah. an idiot. Or yeah, or you're not trying to be something you're not. Yeah. And so connection, builds trust, and trust is the bedrock of teams. And so so that was, um, you know, a change in the way we develop leadership and sort of a, around the value of, I guess, of awareness and self-awareness.
0: Yeah. Now, there's a bit of good luck that comes along with this as well. You know, uh, you can luck. have all these visions – But you get a player like dustin martin who everyone knows is an absolute weapon uh and he remains injury free and a a finals gun you know is that part of the plan to draft well or is this still just an element of serendipity
1: and fairy dust i mean you always you always you always want to draft well you always but there's no point bringing players um talented players into an environment that doesn't continue to develop them physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, you know. And so, yes, you've got to draft the players, but you've got to create an environment where they can be proud to be yep. and as good as they can be. Yeah. And so, yes, that was my first draft. Um, and as CEO, I'm, I'm not intimately involved. I don't make the selections. But, but you know, I'm certainly aware of the strategy and the list build strategy and the sorts of players we want to bring in. But to give credit to our recruiting manager at the time, Francis Jackson, they go back; they rank every player in the draft um, based on their own subjective assessments of how good they are, and and, um, and they ranked him number one. Yeah. So there was there was the Grove Scully draft. Melbourne had the first two picks. We're the third. So this is pre-draft. I Had Dustin one. Now he, he, he went to three, and we grabbed him. Um, and I remember, I remember. I remember sitting and having a discussion, you know, what the, I guess the, the reasoning being that this guy's upside is enormous. Yeah. Like he left school in United, pretty tough circumstances. He hasn't been polished and buffed and developed like a lot of these guys have been on state under twelves or state under foot. So he was a rough diamond. Yeah.
0: At a different club he may not have flourished.
1: Yeah, indeed. Yeah. yeah. But we took a while. Yeah, We took a while. We had to go through our own journey to get to the point where it took about how we, to, I guess, to learn our own way, our own model of leadership development. Yep. Developing leadership and people and teams.
0: Just take us through that moment where the club wins its first premiership in quite a few uh, years, quite a few decades. Yeah. What was that like for you? A relief?
1: Oh, uh, look, yeah, it was. It was a relief. It was incredibly exciting. It was, um, look, we just, we just, uh, you know, the last ace probably ten games of that season, we were just we were just playing really, really well. And and so it was like an irresistible ball of momentum. And in fact if you took a ladder, I think the last ten games, I think we were I think we were four points clear about twelve percent on top. So we're going well and it just happened really quickly. And um and we play, you know, playing Adelaide playing very well and obviously Grand final, and it just before you know it, you you won it. It just sort of, it just happened really, really quickly. And so I think that yeah, the catharsis, the relief. Yeah, you know, thirty seven years, you know, the scorn, the ridicule, um, the criticism.
0: I still can't bring myself
1: to say well done, but no, well I done. Understand. <laughs> I understand. I mean, there's a yeah. Once you understand what goes in, to it, it's a big relief. It's a it's a big relief, but also a great empathy. Yes. It's a huge effort to get to a grand final. Yeah.
0: And, and, and a box tick because you never got that as a player? Does it feel the same? Or?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, there's part of me, you know, I'm proud of my career, but there's part of me unfulfilled. that feels a little unfulfilled. Yeah. I don't lose any sleep over it, but certainly, the, you know, I still think the richest experience in a footy club is the playing when you're responsible for the whole shebang, you know, and and – you win it. It's incredible. Good, good result.
0: Yeah. I'm just mindful of time. So we're on to the quickfire round to finish sure off. Man. Favourite player you played with?
1: I think in terms of all round, on or off field, probably Richo, probably Matthew Richardson. One, one on the field, he was just incredibly courageous and freakish and off the field, he's a big-spirited, larger-than-life, gave a lot of himself in and around the locker room. Um, Lovely bloke. Yeah, Good. great fella. Most influential person on your footy career? Uh, well, in my entire career, oh, I'd, I'd probably have to say, I'd probably have to say probably Peggy O'Neill. I just think her humble, selfless, but strong principled leadership, you know, but for her, we may not have won a flag at all.
0: Going back to Tasmania, first goal ever kicked.
1: <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember. I remember, I remember, um, I could remember. I remember <laughs> that my second game of state football, State Bernie, we played Hobart, Sandy Bay and Hobart a kick five at Sandy Bay. Um I remember most of those. <laughs> um that I can't remember my first goal. Best game you ever played? Oh, look, the, the 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 best games that I was ever involved in were winning finals. You know, they weren't the best of games. They weren't the best games I played individually, but to win a big final at the MCG, say so we played Essen at ninety five um, huge come-from-behind win, 90,000 people, Carlton, 2001, similar. Big – they're great games. Yeah. You know, I, I loved, I loved um, State of Origin games, playing with – we beat Victoria once. Once again, the most memorable. I could not remember the best game I played, to be yeah. honest. I should. There weren't that many. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Person dead or alive you'd most like to have lunch with today.
1: Yeah. You know what? I, 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 I've I had great as a young student growing up and with interest in, I guess, Current affairs and politics. I have great admiration for Paul Keating. Yeah. I just thought he was a a trailblazing leader. He sort of went against his party platform, revolutionised the economy. We could could do well. We're focused on policy rather than populism. Yeah. Great Australian politician. Yeah. And Uh, and I had the fortune to meet him a year or so ago. And uh, I don't think he knows much about footy, but... uh, I just remember as a young kid when you're developing your own sort of leadership consciousness and and, and identifying attributes of leaders, I thought he's a very strong leader. He was great in question time. Yeah, he was, yeah. Favourite guitarist? Favourite guitarist, oh, gee, probably uh, old time, probably Jimmy Page. Yeah, right. Yeah. Led Zeppelin. Mm.
0: Well, Brendan Gale, I have no doubt you've got a busy day, a busy season in front of you. Good luck for the club, not too much good Luck for the club. But thank you for taking some time out this morning to share your incredible journey. Thank you for being on discipline.
1: My pleasure, mate.